This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and Lionshare hosted a track called The Holy Spirit and Transformation. In fact, that's where the recorded audio for today's episode came from. Dave Beering led this track for Lionshare's team, and he has written a great four-page summary of his core teaching on transformation. This PDF is called The Process of Transformation, and it's available for free through discipleship.org. Make sure to go online and download this free PDF at discipleship.org slash lionshare. That's lionshare, L-I-O-N-S-H-A-R-E, discipleship.org slash lionshare. And now for the track session. Well, uh, about, I don't know, 10 years ago now, my husband and I uh, were walking through um, a pretty difficult season of infertility. And there came a moment where we decided to change our prayer from uh, God give us kids to God make us parents. And there was something about that slight shift in our prayer when it happened. No, I didn't get pregnant at that point. The millennials showed up in our lives, around our table, uh, in our living room, on our front porch, in the car, on vacation with us, running errands with us. Uh, We found ourselves in a position of being spiritual parents to really a generation that wasn't that much younger than us, but people that either needed reparenting or spiritual parenting or just a surrogate family in a part of the country where they were new to. And so that group of people now has become family to us. Uh, we have an experience every Sunday night called Family Dinner where we have millennials around our table. And what I love about it is that they have now become older brothers and sisters to our two-and-a-half-year-old teeny tyrant named Sawyer Elizabeth Zimple. Um, but we fell in love with this generation that is labeled the millennials. Um, now, Jesus' last command was go make disciples. That's what this whole conference is about. How do we do the work of fulfilling Jesus' last command? How do we make sure that Jesus' last command doesn't just become our least concern in the church? But I want to draw attention to the word make. Jesus said, go make disciples. Now, I'm not sure how you operate, but in my role at the church, at National Community Church, I often find myself just looking for disciples. Oh, I've got a need over here that I need to fill. I need somebody to help lead children's ministry. Let me go find a disciple. Uh, I need somebody to lead this small group. Let me go find a disciple. I need somebody to be in charge of this outreach. Let me go find a disciple who's ready and equipped to do that. When Jesus says, no, we have to make disciples. And what that says to me is it requires hard work. It requires grit and energy and time and effort and a good bit of sanity to make disciples. And, uh, and I think it requires, especially when we're talking about millennial generation, it requires emotional intelligence. It requires emotional capacity and emotional fortitude. It's time on the calendar. It's time around the table. It's difficult conversations and walking with them through difficult circumstances. We have to make disciples. Now, for those of us that might have some experience with missions and missiology, we know that when we go to a different culture, 
to take the gospel. We have to contextualize the gospel in the language and the customs and the culture of the people that we're going to. And we often spend a lot of time studying the language, studying the culture, trying to find those inroads and those doors and those opportunities to share the faith in a way that they'll understand. And uh, in my experience is that sometimes millennials almost need to be treated like an unreached people group. And we need to do the hard work of studying them and understanding them and learning them and being able to speak the language that they speak in order that we might win an audience for the gospel. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul says, Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. So when Paul was speaking to a Jewish audience, he was, he was a model Jewish Pharisee. When he was speaking to a Gentile audience, he kind of minimized that part of his character. When he's in Corinth, he knew that in Corinth, in order to gain an audience for the gospel, he had to work. Because in that culture, if you didn't have a job, you were considered useless to society. You were not a contributing member to the culture. And so he made tents. And in that, gained an audience for the gospel. And yet in Athens, when he goes to Mars Hill, he realized that in Athens, a philosopher was considered to be a contributing member of society. So he didn't feel the need to work there, but simply to go into the marketplace of ideas and contend for the gospel. He said, I'm going to be all things to all people so that by all means I might win some. And so that's what I want to encourage us to do today, that when we have a heart to win the next generation, that we would be willing to lay aside our preferences for the sake of gaining an audience for the gospel. Um, There's been a lot written about the millennial generation. There's been a lot written about 20-somethings. As I said last night, I feel like we we do a lot of talking about them when probably we should just talk to them. Uh, But for the sake of conversation, I want to read uh, an article that was published in Time Magazine. In Time Magazine, in writing about Uh, The 20-something generation said they have trouble making decisions. They would rather hike in the Himalayas than climb a corporate ladder. They have few heroes, no anthems, no style to call their own. They crave entertainment, but their attention span is as short as one zap of a TV dial. They hate yuppies, hippies, and druggies. They postpone marriage because they dread divorce. They sneer at Range Rovers and Rolexes. What they hold dear are family life, local activism, national parks, and mountain bikes. They possess only a hazy sense of their own identity, but a monumental preoccupation with all the problems the preceding generation will leave for them to fix. Many of us are probably thinking, yes, yes, amen, amen, Those are the millennials I know. Here's what's interesting about this article. It was published in 1990, which means half the millennial generation was not yet born, and the oldest of them were only 10 years old. This was written about Generation X. So for those of you that are in the room that are Gen X, and and then when you start reading a couple of the words, you're like, oh, yeah, that's not millennial. That was actually me. And I bring this up to highlight one of the things I mentioned last night that we have to be very careful when we talk about the millennials and we talk about how different that they are and how challenging they are, that we don't mistake a 20-something issue with a millennial issue. In other words, there are certain things that are common to 20-somethings in every generation. A, A passion, a zeal, a recklessness, an immaturity, a desire to be recognized and to get promotion and opportunity. I believe those things are common 
to all 20-somethings. But then there are things that make the millennial generation unique, and those are worth understanding and pointing out. I think it's, it's important to realize this was the first genera- generation to be handed a trophy simply for participating, and they were the first generation to get a toy in the bag whenever the Happy Meal was given to them. They're the first generation that has instant connection and instant information right at their fingertips at all times. They're accustomed to being able to level up anytime they finish one, you know, level of the video game. They're always able to get instant access to their grades, to how they're doing, to the status that they hold. And so when we start throwing around words like entitled and selfish and shallow and punks, we just have to remember that they are largely the products of the culture that was handed to them. They grew up in a culture that was given to them, and they are simply responding in the way that we've conditioned them to respond. Um, There are a few questions that have been asked of me, and in many ways, I feel like I'm a little bit of a millennial. I was born in 74, so I'm definitely right in the middle of Gen X, but... um, but I'm, I'm wired a little bit, I think, like them. But there have been some things that have happened in conversations that have been stark realizations that, oh, no, I'm not a millennial. Uh, recently, I was asked, Heather, what movies did you just watch over and over as a child? You know, I think about my two-and-a-half-year-old could watch certain Mickey Mouse Clubhouse shows just over and over and over and over again. They're her favorites. And I was racking my brain trying to remember what were the movies that, as a child, I just watched over and over again. And I realized... Those didn't exist. We didn't have a VCR until I was in the fourth grade. So it wasn't like I could just watch Land Before Time over and over and over again as often as I wanted. That's a distinction between my generation and the one coming back. They're like, oh, I watched Wally every day. It drove my parents crazy. I watched Cars every day. It drove my parents crazy. They have, they have been conditioned to get what they want on demand. Uh, another thing that was shocking to me is when a millennial told me, I don't go to movie theaters. <laughs> I was like, well, that's silly. I was like, where do you watch your movies? Well, I watch them on my bed, on my computer at home. It's cheaper. It's more convenient. For them, entertainment is no longer about the communal experience and about personal convenience. Uh, I was asked, I'm asked all the time, almost every single day, how did I do? How did I do? How did I do? How did I do? They want instant feedback. I had to wait till the end of the quarter to get my report card. They're accustomed to instant feedback. You know, I, I just played Candyland, and by the end of the game, I knew how I had done. They level up on the video game with each uh, level that they do. How did I do? They want regular and immediate feedback. Can we work on this together? I have millennials that will literally come and sit in my office. Um, We'll have a meeting about a project, and then I'm ready for them to go work on it, and they just stay in my office and work on it. Because to them, getting work done is a tribal experience. Entertainment is a personal experience, but getting work done, getting tasks done, being on mission together is a tribal experience for them. Um, What's my prize? I'm actually never asked that question specifically in those words, but I hear a lot of questions that what they're basically asking is, what do I get out of this? What's my prize? I actually did have a a young leader uh, in our in our church. And and I I, my church. Let me give some background about the church I'm at. We're uh, in located in Washington, D.C. We've got we're multi sites. We've got four campuses in Washington, D.C., four in Virginia. We're about 50 percent single and 20 something. 
So I'm immersed in this stuff every day. And we had a 20-something on our staff that we, we were asking all of our teams to set goals for the upcoming year. And he asked, if I accomplish all these goals, what do I get? And I'm like, you get to keep your job. <laughs> yeah, but he's looking for the prize. Um, I heard this recently. Email is snail mail. Like, oh, I, I thought snail mail was snail mail. But to the emerging generation, email is snail mail. They have a different way of communicating. It's by text. Uh, it's by uh, Snapchat. It's by Instagram. Um, I have a lot of millennials that will send me things like prayer requests or requests for counseling through text and Instagram and Facebook messaging. So there's a different way of communicating. For them, technology and communication are inextricably linked. Um, What is interesting about millennials is that many of them would actually prefer a face-to-face conversation than an email conversation. So just something interesting to keep in mind. Um, Now, I I love that the majority of our church are in their 20s and 30s. I love it. It, It's life-giving to me. There is energy. There is passion. There is zeal. Yes, there are lots of growth opportunities and difficult conversations, but I love it because they are on mission every day. They believe that they are called to partner with Jesus in the work he's doing around the world, and it's a very exciting thing. They're team players. They're optimistic. They are much more hopeful than my generation is and was. And I would just say this, that if you're a person that likes uh, socially conscious brands like Tom Shoes or Warby Parker, then you can thank a millennial for that. If you have enjoyed Sweetgreen or stayed at an Airbnb, you can thank a millennial for that. Um, If you like to see, um, you know, the health and the education of young boys and girls around the world improved, you can thank millennials for that because they're the ones on the front lines making those differences. If you have used social media this week, you can thank a millennial for that. So this idea that we have of them being people just on the sidelines, being lazy and not contributing, I believe that they're contributing some of the most important things and some of the most important movements to our culture today. Just to give a a snapshot, um, just to hit the pause button for a minute and take a big step back, there are five generations currently living on earth today. Uh, There's the builder generation or the traditionalists. There is the baby boomer generation. Um, There is uh, Gen X, which is mine. Uh, The millennials, which we're talking about today. And then Generation Z. Uh, They're the ones that are coming up behind the millennials that there's obvious, there's not a lot of research about yet. And I've already started reading and trying to figure out, man, these kids that are coming up in our youth group don't remember 9-11. Uh, it's a different world for them. So what I want to do is just, uh, um, I want to back up and talk about these different generations. Because I think when we, when we consider the historical and the cultural time in which they grew up, it helps us understand them better. So uh, Jody, why don't we go to that first slide. So this is the greatest generation, the traditionalists, the builders born before 1945. This is my grandmother's generation. My grand just turned 100 uh, this year. And to hear her tell stories is just, I can't get enough of it. Uh, Let's go to the next one and just look at the key events and the popular music and the top television shows of the time of generation Uh, the greatest generation. These are the things that shaped that generation. Things like World War I, World War II, Prohibition, the Great Depression. When we think about these major historical events in their lives, we understand why they were wired the way that they were. They were a selfless generation. They were a generation that believed we can accomplish more together, that the higher good was greater than the personal preference. Um, 
you know, they couldn't answer what movies they watched over and over again. They couldn't even talk about their favorite television shows because they didn't exist at the time. Uh, they had a very different childhood. When we think about things like the Great Depression, they were cautious, they were thrifty, focused on saving. My grandmother, uh, my, my grandmother on the other side of the family, my paternal grandmother, every time I was at her house, I would open up drawers and find just aluminum foil, just already used, just still in the drawers. And I understood it was because they saved it. And even then, like, I mean, she was traveling all over the world at the time. Like, she had plenty of money. But she was saving aluminum foil because that was the way she was raised. Um, we think about things like World War II, sacrificing individualism for a greater cause. Uh, the, the, the greatest generation had great confidence in experts and leaders. Um, part of it is the rise of the radio. And all of a sudden you had experts that everyone could hear. And they were trusted. Leadership was trusted. Uh, this is why you have to go to the doctor with this generation because they will not ask any questions because whatever the doctor says is truth and they don't even really need to remember it themselves. They just, whatever they say is truth. There's great trust in leadership. Um, so that's the greatest generation and one that's had a tremendous influence on my life and that I love and I respect so much and one that actually the millennial generation has great respect for as well. Uh, let's go on to the next one. The, uh, this would be the baby boomer generation. Um, this generation was marked by things like the civil rights movement, Watergate scandal, Woodstock, the Vietnam conflict. All of a sudden we see these really difficult shifts in culture and in history. They were living at a time that was very unstable politically and historically. And you can see that in the way this generation lives out um, their morality, their belief structures. Um, you can see some of the, uh, the um, television shows at the time, the popular music. One thing that was interesting about this generation, though, is that before all this scandal started and before all the shifts began to happen, they were living in a magical time. The, 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 recession, uh, uh, the Great Depression was over and World War II was over and there was a time of great opulence and uh, abundance and the boomer generation grew up during this abundant time and magical time. You think about things like Tinkerbell and the wonderful world of Disney. That was their Sunday night. Um, they were having parents and grandparents living with them. The, their lifespans are growing longer, so there's more of a, a tight family connection. We see it in things like All in the Family and the Andy Griffith Show. Um, boomers grew up believing that the world was theirs for the taking if they worked hard enough, um, but they had to compete. There were so many of them. They had to compete for a spot at the team. They had to compete for a spot in the boardroom. They had to compete at a spot for an opportunity. Um, values in this generation shifted from uh, self-sacrifice to a little bit more of self-consumption because of the affluence that they lived in. Um, and the, the rise of television meant that entire nations saw the same stories at the same time and heard the same newscasts at the same time. Uh, and, uh, and marketers for the first time began promoting things to the teenager generation. This is when we kind of see the rise of this group of uh, young adults called teenagers being marketed to and um, promoted to specifically. All right, then we get to Generation X, and this is my, this is my generation. And so we move uh, from this, uh, this, this time of change in culture 
to uh, this much smaller generation that was born between 1965 and 1980. Uh, Things like Atari and the Sony Walkman and the AIDS crisis and MTV, the Challenger explosion. I personally remember where I was when the Challenger exploded and how life-changing that was for me. Um, You know, some of the... It's interesting to see some of the top television shows, things like Friends, Seinfeld, some of these uh, sitcoms. Um, The game Donkey Kong came out in 1981. The hero of Donkey Kong was not handsome. He was not a hero. He was kind of an anti-hero. He was a middle-aged, blue-collar guy uh, that was just trying to save his girlfriend. And what's interesting is when the game rebooted in 1984, he was no longer trying to save his girlfriend, but save his stash of bananas. There's something about that game that describes the mindset of Generation X. The magic had gone. The magic was disappearing. Um, We lived through multiple recessions. Uh, We remember there being kids' faces on milk cartons who were missing. Um, We were the squished generation. It was hard for us to find jobs, hard to find promotions. Um, And we were the first generation that was really, really focused on life outside of work. Um, we, we, uh, We worked in order to live. Um, my granddaddy, uh, to his dying day, did not understand why I turned down a job that I was offered um, that would have been a very lucrative job, a very stable job, a very well-respected job to go work in Washington, D.C. in the U.S. Senate. Um, he, couldn't, he just couldn't understand why I would give up that kind of stability to pursue a passion. Uh, But the other interesting thing about Generation X is that our greater access to information made us a little more skeptical and a little more cynical. And that's, and because we were a squished generation, we didn't feel like we had any ability to impact anything, so we just made fun of everything. That's why you see the rise of shows like um, Saturday Night Live. We're just going to make fun of it. We're going to parody it. We see the rise of things like Mad Magazine. We're just going to make fun of things. We're going to make light of things. Find the humor in everything. And then you have the millennials, uh, also called Generation Y, Next Gen, Net Gen. Um, They were born, and there's a lot of different numbers that float around. I tend to use 1980 to 2000, although I I really think in 1995 there was a micro-generation that Daniel talked about last night, the Oregon Trail generation. They were kind of in between. They're squished in between uh, the the millennials and um, and Gen X. But uh, looking at just the key events that shaped their young lives, things like the Oklahoma City Federal Building bombing, um, Columbine, uh, Y2K, September 11th, a lot of really big global events that have shaped their young lives. Um, They saw the first black president elected to the White House. Um, The mantra of the millennial generation comes from a cartoon they watched as kids, Bob the Builder, can we fix it? Yes, we can. That is their mindset, that we can do something about it. Um, The millennial generation uh, grew up under helicopter parents. Generation X were latchkey kids, had the key. We just let ourselves in at the end of the day because both parents are working. Millennial generation, the parents just circled around them as tightly as they could. We even, we had a situation recently um, with one of our staff and uh, we got an email from the parent. (laughs) Uh, the parents are, are not only doing the, and Kent shaking his head, I bet he's had a similar experience at Northway. Um, you know, it's not that you just go to your kid's, um, 
parent-teacher conference when they're in elementary school, you're, you're going with them to their college interviews and their job interviews. It's a, it's a, it's a helicopter parent movement. And what's interesting about Gen Z is we're seeing a, a movement away from that because the, the millennials are reacting against it. Um, technology, boomers had to learn computers for their work. Uh, Generation X learned them at home and at school. And most of the millennials don't remember life without it. Uh, for millennials, for most of them, um, the, the smartphone is an appendage. And, and I think I'm in this world so much that I'm the same way. I, I went um, for about four hours the other day where I didn't have my phone because I left it in my office and I constantly felt like something was missing. And that's when I realized, oh, something probably needs to change. But uh, for millennials, the smartphone is an appendage. So that's just a snapshot of these four generations and what they're like. And hopefully to see, like, culture has shaped us. Um, I think it's it, sometimes we look at, at gen, uh, or at least I look at the greatest generation, I think, what was deposited in that generation that just was missing from mine? When really the cultural events, the historical events, what was going on in those arenas shaped those generations to become what they were. Now, I want to talk for just a few moments about the millennial paradox. Millennials are a difficult generation to nail down because they don't like labels and they don't like boxes. And the reality is none of us do. But I think there's a particular disdain for it in this generation. Uh, they don't want to be stereotyped. They don't want to be caricatured. But I do want to give us some handles for helping us understand them. And so there's actually a, a millennial or two in the room, and I'm going to ask them to fact check me later. Um, these are just some things I've observed. They are not true of every millennial. As, as I hope you're hearing in this conference, it's important to talk to them, find out their story. Uh, but there are some unique trends that I've seen. One is that they are both very consumeristic and very generous all at the same time. It makes them very confusing. They will shell out large amounts of money on a pair of shoes, on a new gadget. It's mind-blowing to me what they will just throw towards a thing that in two years' time is not going to be the cool thing anymore. Or in two months' time is not going to be the cool thing anymore. But at the same time, I see them pour out tremendous amounts of resources to causes they believe in. Big global causes and homegrown causes. They will pay more money for a cup of coffee that they know is going also to a cause because they believe in that. Uh, I've seen them, um, I've seen them give, uh, they, they don't want to give to building projects. They want to give to things that are making the world a better place. And so while they are incredibly consumeristic, they are also incredibly generous to think that we've been able to have the budget that we've had at National Community Church on largely 20 and 30-something givers demonstrates that they are generous people. They're also hypocritical in their convictions, though. I noticed that one of our, um, uh, one of our uh, teammates uh, at a staff meeting recently was wearing an A21 hat. And if you know A21, they're an organization that is fighting human trafficking around the world. It's a tremendous organization. If you're not familiar with it, I would encourage you to check it out. So he's wearing an A21 hat to say, I am standing with those that are fighting against trafficking, that are working to end slavery in the 21st century. At the same time, he's wearing a bracelet that was made by slave labor in India. So sometimes there's just, there's like a disconnect or there's a lack of awareness or there's maybe even a bit of hypocrisy in their convictions. 
but it's not that it's not because they're not aware of it. It's just it just it just it's just a miss. Um, the other thing that I've seen that's a paradox is that on one hand they're non-committal, but they're also willing to to make huge life-changing commitments. So for me to nail down a millennial to come meet me for coffee at eight in the morning is like pulling teeth. To convince them that they should invest $3,500 in two weeks of their lives to go dig a well in Uganda, they're in, done, no questions asked. To ask them to give a year of their life to go overseas to serve in an impoverished area or to serve in a school or to serve in an an anti-trafficking organization, they're all in. And so just realizing when we say that, man, they're not a very committed people, it's, it's both and. It's yes and no. And so one of the things I've done is I've just started trying to ask for big commitments. I, I ask them to match my commitment first and foremost. And instead of trying to give them little things to commit to, um, I found that they actually do better when you ask them to do big things. So I've just tried to start asking them to do big things. Uh, another paradox we see is that they're wary of authority, but they crave mentors. On one hand, they trust no one because they've seen leaders in every arena of society fall. And that's why I think it's so important for us as followers of Christ. It is way, we heard the word authenticity, authenticity, authenticity so much last night. And I feel like that becomes almost a buzzword, an empty word that no one really knows what it means. For me, it is all about character and then not being ashamed of the character of Christ. We have got to make sure that our character is solid because they have seen so many leaders rise and fall that they, in falling morally, ethically, financially, spiritually, personally. They've been let down by parents, by teachers, by coaches, by civic leaders. And so they're, they're wary of authority. Now, I do think in D.C. we have a little bit of a different kind of millennial because they're the ones that come to work in the government. So they're not jaded yet, at least. Um, but uh, they're a little bit more open. But I have seen that millennials crave mentors. It's not that they are wary of the older generation. It's just that they're wary of authority. And there are no experts in their generation anymore because everyone is an expert, because anyone with access to social media or a blog can be an expert. But they're looking for people to invest in them. Um, I was talking to a millennial the other day that... um, said, I know how to shoot a video, composite it, edit it, upload it, and put it in the right social media channels such that it would go viral in a matter of hours. But I have no idea how to sew a button on my shirt or change the oil in my car. It's a generation that is losing life skills, and they're looking for older people to do that. It's also interesting, this is the first generation that can Google anything they don't know how to do. So when they don't know how to change their oil or sew a button on, they just Google it, which means we're losing the relational connection that used to exist between the older and younger generation. In years past, younger generations had to go to an older generation to learn basic life skills. They don't have to do that anymore, but what I'm finding is they're craving that. Another thing that I'm seeing that's a paradox is that they're a deeply broken generation and also have tremendous potential. As I mentioned last night, this is a generation that um, they didn't have to stumble across pornography under a bed or in a closet. It's been in the palm of their hand and it has been in their face 
for many of them as long as they can remember. This is a generation that has tremendous pain, pain from uh, uh, sexual and relational confusion, woundedness, brokenness, sins they've committed, sins that have been committed against them. They're deeply wounded and they're broken and they know it. And they aren't scared to admit it. But one of the things that I am so hopeful about is the level of potential that they have. Their intellect, their passion, their energy, their influence. And while previous generations would have found some moment in time where they would have said, you know what, despite all that stuff that happened to me, I'm going to find a way to get over that and I'm going to minister anyway. I'm going to lead anyway. I'm going to be a person of influence anyway. This generation, instead of like waiting to get over something, is saying, you know what? Because I've been broken, it gives me a level of authority. I'm going to minister out of my brokenness, not in spite of my brokenness. And that makes them a very uh, authentic, transparent, vulnerable group of leaders. The kind of leaders that understand that I confess my sins to God for forgiveness, but I confess my sins to one another for healing. And I'm hopeful that this generation that says, you know what, I'm, I have been broken and that's what gives me a platform to help others. I'm, I'm very hopeful about that generation of deeply broken but great potential. Uh, another paradox that we see is that they're very justice oriented but also compassion fatigued. So this is the generation that, again, I mean, we've got a team going out this year in July that one of my direct reports leads. They're going to Uganda to dig some wells. And, uh, and, and they're all about it. They're all excited about it. And then you come home and you realize that for that well to stay clean, you've got to make sure that the waters running in and around that area stay clean, which means that sometimes there's larger tribal or environmental issues that have to be addressed. So now it's not just about digging a well. It's about changing politics and changing social realities. And that can become incredibly overwhelming to realize that it's not just a one-time fix, but these larger systemic things in culture. And you look around and you see women on the streets in Thailand and education for girls in the Middle East and shelter and care for AIDS victims in Africa and rebuilding whole nations like Haiti after multiple natural disasters. And so these kids that are so, care so deeply about these things become overwhelmed because they realize I really can't do anything to change the larger issues. It's like I'm just putting a Band-Aid on a much bigger cancer and then they come home and they realize we've got the same problems at home we have prostitutes on k street that are being trafficked we've got the largest area of poverty in the united states right across the river in the anacostia area Um, we've got the highest hiv rates in in parts of washington dc kids without loving and caring homes and so they're just disoriented but they also become very compassion fatigued and when that happens they can become cynical and skeptical is they try to change everything. They feel like they're impacting nothing. And so one of the things I always try to encourage um, our millennials is, look, you, you be obedient to what God has asked you to do. As Andy Stanley would say, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And just focus on the small things that are in front of you at the moment. So let's, let's try to make this a little more practical. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Wait, wait. This is an important one. Um, they, want, they want depth, but they also want sound bites. My, my favorite example of this, and this is, they're real confusing because they want deep theology, but they also want it to come in like a Twitter-sized package. 
Um, so my favorite example of this is I went with a millennial one time to get a study Bible. So we go to the Lifeway store and she walks up with three study Bibles. She has the archaeological study Bible. She has a, um, like an NIV life application study Bible and some other study Bible. I don't even remember. And then right on, I mean, it's like as tall as she was. And then right on top of it was this 99 cent pocket guide to the entire Bible. And I was like, that, that is the millennial generation's approach to philosophy and theology and information right here. You want the depth, but you also want the soundbite. And, and I've found that with millennials, it's not either or, it's both and. And so it's about making very, very complicated things simple and, fi- and making the things that we have simplified as a church, rediscovering the richness of them. Um, it's, it's finding the simplicity on the far side of complexity. Um, a couple of other things that are just kind of interesting. They're the most connected and also the most lonely. They have 1,500 friends on Facebook and 2,000 Instagram followers, but they don't know who they would call to pick them up from the hospital after a surgery. Uh, they place a high value on authenticity, and yet they have carefully curated brands and images on social media. So that's just a, a, some of the paradoxes I see. Um, now to, to get a little bit more practical, how do we do this? What are practical ways to disciple the next generation? I want to go through these pretty quickly so we have time for some uh, questions. One, uh, bring them into the living room. And I mean that literally, into your living room, into where you do life. And there are two things that happen when you bring them into this space. Um, they learn practical life skills and they also learn, um, they also receive parenting. And Paul talks at great length about how he is Timothy's spiritual father. And Paul talks about spiritual fatherhood. I believe that spiritual motherhood and fatherhood is something we need to rediscover. Millennials don't need us to be cool. They don't need us to understand their music. They don't need us to understand what they're excited about culturally. They have their friends for that. They need us to walk in an authority of spiritual parenthood. And again, Ryan and I are only about... 10 or 15 years older than some of these kids, and so even calling them kids sounds silly. But there's something that they receive in that place when you bring them into your life. Um, again, practical life skills. We have kids over every Sunday night for dinner, and so maybe there's kids that don't really know how to cook. And what's fascinating, I actually don't do any of it. If I did the cooking, they wouldn't eat it. Ryan actually does most of our cooking. And some of them are in the kitchen learning and walking alongside there. Um, I don't know that they're learning anything from me other than if they don't understand football, they're learning that. But, um, but bring them into your living room to, to learn practical life skills and to receive a level of parenting. Um, bring them into the conversation. Conversations with millennials are fun. <laughs> they're all over the place. Things that they're really, really passionate about one day, they don't really care about the next. They change their minds so quickly. I mean, some of it's as silly as I had a millennial with me one time and I offered some blackberries and they said, I don't like blackberries. And then a week later, they ate a blackberry and they were like eating my entire clamshell of blackberries. What I found out, they had never tried one before. I don't know how you get to 25 years old and have never tried a blackberry. But they're, I mean, adamantly opposed to blackberries. Oh, I love blackberries. And, and that's a silly example of the larger things that exist as well. Their political views, their cultural views. There can be massive shifts like that. Um, I think you need to graft them into your story. They actually love oral tradition. They love stories. And so tell stories of your successes, but more importantly, tell stories of your failures. Share your doubts. 
I mentioned this on the platform last night, but when I say to a millennial, and, and we have to steward these things well, we have to make sure they have the maturity to bear it. But when I share with a millennial, I'm having trouble trusting God in this area. Or in that season of my life, I really had a hard time believing that God was good and merciful. Or, you know, when I read Jesus say this in scripture, I don't know practically how to live that out in my own life. That gains you an audience because they feel like they can relate to you. If we're honest about our faith and honest about our doubts and our fears and our questions, it gives us the opportunity to talk with them about the gospel. I would say use the lane that you've been given. Um, Millennials often will not give you access to their entire lives at once. So just use the lane that you've been given. And don't try to blow through that lane with a bulldozer. Steward that lane well. And as you steward that lane, they will open up other lanes for you to speak into their lives. Um, You know, because it might start as just coaching and leadership. It might start as, you know, coaching and marriage. I actually have a young millennial right now that the lane they've given to me is in leadership development. But what I see in this person's life is a ton of character issues. And I'm trying to steward very well right now how I address those things because that lane hasn't necessarily been opened up. And so I'm just trying to stay over here and praying that conversations will turn and allow me access over here. Um, So speak to the level that they grant you permission to do so. Um, Connect them to your network. They are a very relational generation. If you have people that are further along, like, and the other thing I think is that a lot of times millennials are looking for a Yoda. They're looking for that one person that they can like download all of their wisdom, you know, just go, here's all my wisdom. I'm your Yoda. And really what they need is a board of directors. So when people, when millennials approach me and ask me to disciple them or to mentor them, my first question is, in what area? What, what are you hoping to gain from our time together? And then I try to build a board of directors for them. So um, sometimes there are girls that come to me because they're, they're new moms that are about to return to work full time. Okay, there's a lane there that I can, I can mentor in a little bit. I'm about two and a half years down the road from you. But, you know, you probably need to go find somebody that's about 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road as well. Um, so connect them with your network. You've got somebody, sometimes people, uh, millennial come to me and say, hey, Heather, I want you to mentor me in Bible study or in theology. Okay, well, I'm going to give you kind of this lane of it, but you need to go talk to these other people and connect to these other people. So connect them to your network. Uh, another thing is connect the dots for them. Because we have a longer road that we've traveled, we see things more clearly. We can see the forest through the trees now. And helping them connect dots in their lives is one of the roles that we can play. Not in a, hey, I told you so, or kind of a patronizing, oh, I know what's going on and you don't. But just helping them connect some dots. Um, for instance, just this morning, I realized, so I, if you've done strength finders, I have a self-assurance strength and I discovered a particular dark side. I mean, there's a lot of dark, I felt like self-assurance was just a dark side, just period. When I first learned that was myself, one of my strengths, but like I, I learned a new, a new, I, the kaleidoscope kind of turned and I was like, oh, there's a dark side to that self-assurance strength I've never seen before. Well, one of the millennials that I'm discipling right now also has a self-assurance strength. And I texted her and said, you know what? I discovered in my own life 
a, 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 a flaw, a sin, an insecurity that I'm wrestling with because I have a self-assurance strength and I feel like that's something we should talk about when I get home. Because my guess is she's dealing with it as well and just, or at some point will, but I've got a little bit more perspective, a few more experiences, a few more data points to connect those dots and say, ah, this is why we wrestle with this and with this because it's a dark side of one of our strengths connecting the dots. Um, here's a fun story. And uh, you don't use, use this as an encouragement to millennials, not as a weapon. Uh, does anyone know how a carrot reproduces? Like, where are the carrot seeds? Does anybody know? Like, I mean, when you eat an apple, you see the seeds, watermelon seeds. Like, <coughs> where are the carrot seeds? What's that? Okay. So I learned this from one of my farmer friends in West Virginia. You plant carrot, let's say you go to, you know, Home Depot and buy the carrot seeds in a little packet. You put those in the ground and at the end of that harvest season, uh, you can pull up a carrot. It's a good carrot. It looks like a carrot. It tastes like a carrot. It's good to eat. It's good to go. You can eat that thing, cook with that thing, do whatever you want. It's a carrot. But for that carrot to become reproducible, you have to leave it in the ground, let it overwinter, and the following season the flowering stalk will shoot up with the seeds. So at the end of one season, you can have a perfectly good carrot. But if you want to have a carrot that reaches its full potential and reproduces itself into others, you have to leave it in that cold, hard, dark ground for a little bit longer. There are some millennials that feel like they've been passed over for jobs passed over for opportunities, passed over for promotions, passed over for platforms. And I share this story with them. And I say, look, a farmer is going to leave his best carrots underground because those are the ones you want reproduced. Could it be God is keeping you hidden for just a little bit longer to make sure you reach your full potential of reproducibility so that you're not just used up in one season? So I have some millennials that every now and then they'll come to me and be like, oh, this happened and I didn't get what I was due and I didn't get my raise, I didn't get my promotion, I didn't get my opportunity. That person got invited to speak to that conference and I didn't. And before I can even say it, they'll say, I know, I know, keep my carrot underground. But just as an encouragement, um, maybe to them, that's a connecting the dots moment that you can do. Hey, look, maybe it's not that you're being passed over, but you're being prepared. For something bigger and again use it as encouragement not as a weapon um, and then the final thing I would say in terms of practical guide them to a relationship they are not interested in religion they are interested in relationship um, now I know sometimes when we talk about you know we get all it's frustrating when you start having to nuance things and get into semantics and split hairs, but just guide them to a relationship. Uh, guide them to Jesus. It's not about social issues or political platforms. It is about a relationship with the king of the universe. It is about Jesus Christ. Let them understand that it's not rules to live by, but a calling to live for. That Jesus didn't just save us from, but he saved us to something. Um, there are, I'm just going to share a couple things we do at NCC that have been helpful. We do an environment called Theology 101. And in the early days of crafting that experience, I remember struggling with what exactly am I teaching? 
am I teaching my own personal theology? Am I teaching our denominational affiliations theology? Am I teaching just evangelical general theology? Am I teaching Pastor Mark's theology? And I felt led by the Spirit to not teach a certain branch of theology, but teach them how to think theologically. Instead of teaching them what to think, that my role was to teach them how to think. Um, We do an experience called The Story, uh, which in three nights takes them through the entire chronological story of the Bible. So we take the prophets and put them into context of the kings. We take the epistles and put them in the context of the, uh, the travels of Paul's missionary journey. We try to help them understand the cultural context, historical context, the spiritual context, that the word of God was written in and then becomes alive to them. And then when they're reading Lamentations, it's not just some weird book that is like, oh man, wish I was back in Proverbs, <laughs> you know. They understand where it was written and why it was written in the tone and the tenor and what God was revealing about himself to his people in that moment. Um, I would say that uh, if, you, uh, if you have a, you, there, there should be in your church some environment where they can belong before they believe. For us, it's the Alpha Course. For others, it's an a, a, um, experience called Starting Point. There are many um, uh, uh, curricula and opportunities here where people can belong before they believe. For us, it's even missions teams. There are certain missions teams that we will let people go on that aren't yet followers of Jesus. Because they feel called to a cause that is dear to the heart of Jesus. They just don't know Jesus yet. But there's something about being a part of what the people of God and the body of Christ are doing that actually draws them to Jesus. So find a place where they can belong before they believe. Uh, For those of you that are in church uh, leadership roles and you have the ability to impact this at a church staff level, I would encourage you, one, put them on the platform. I know it's risky. I know it's dangerous. I know there might be theology you have to clean up later or even language you have to clean up later or just immaturity that you have to clean up later. But put them on the platform because when a millennial sees a millennial, there's instant trust. They see somebody they can relate to and somebody that looks like them. I was recently talking with our teaching team at NCC and I pointed out that in three months we will no longer have a 20 or 30 something on the platform regularly and I believe that needs to change. And we need to start developing the younger leaders in our midst. Um, Bring them to the table of decision making. Some of you and your elder boards, your deacon boards, your executive leadership teams are making huge critical decisions about buildings or programs or budgets that the next generation is going to have to manage in 20 to 30 years. Do they know how you made decisions, the posture you took to make decisions, the prayer that went into those decisions, the reasons you made those decisions? Bring them to the table, not just so they have a voice in the decision making, and maybe it's not even having a vote or a, or a voice to, into the decision itself, but so they can understand the character and the posture that was taken to make those decisions. The other thing I've learned about millennials is that they don't necessarily have to have their way They just want their way considered. And they can also sniff out if you're considering their way just to give them a like a, okay, good, thank you. Or if we're really taking it into consideration. And then finally, examine your pipelines. And what I mean by that, is there a room for a millennial on your staff to grow, to be challenged, and to find new opportunities for their gifts and their passions? 
I think this also pertains to our discipleship strategies. We found that millennials, there is no one size fits all. I would argue that there's no one size fits all for anyone. Um, it's about meeting them where they are and taking them one step closer to Jesus. Um, basically find ways to allow millennials to level up. Um, even more practically, this is how I'm doing it. So every other week um, in certain seasons of my life, I do Discipleship Journey. It's a tool that we have at LionShare. And I'll have millennials around my living room table, around a, a coffee house table. And uh, every other week, we're working through Discipleship Journey together. And I, those are, I handpick those people. Um, millennials that I have my eye on that I believe God might be calling me to. Um, every week, as I mentioned, Ryan and I have something called Family Dinner. And it's millennials around the table. And sometimes they're stuffing Christmas cards with us or they're painting Easter eggs with my kid or they're helping us clean the house for some, I mean, like it sounds like now I'm just using child labor. Um, it really, <laughs> it really, I hope that's not it. Jody's actually here. She's part of family dinner so she can give you the real story uh, in a moment. Um, but it's where we talk about life and there's no agenda. There's no curriculum. It's just life. Um, I'm hoping that one of the most valuable things people learned from family dinner over the past two and a half years is how you navigate life with a newborn and with a toddler. Because every night they saw us wrangling that child to bed, trying to get that kid to eat, trying to teach that kid manners. Um, I'm hoping that they're, they're learning those things along the way without it being a, a curriculum or a program. Um, front porch conversations. The Holy Spirit revealed to me a few years ago that my front porch was more important than any platform I would ever stand on. And that anything I taught on my front porch um, or anything I taught on a platform should be lived out first on my front porch. And so a lot of times if it's not like an, it's more of a mentoring conversation, not an official work conversation, I'll have people come to my front porch. And that's where we'll talk about our doubts and our fears and our insecurities and life. And I'll try to give some guidance along the way. Um, errands and field trips um I, sometimes the best conversations happen when you're just running an errand um and you know for some millennials that are used to doing all their shopping online maybe going to the grocery store with you could be an an, an informational experience um and so those happen irregularly in my life i actually have a rule i don't travel alone um and it's not because of i'm i'm concerned about um the optics of you know, morality or anything like that. It's just, I know that traveling with me, I can, I can sit across a, a coffee table from you all day long and talk to you about integrity and humility and um, how to have the right posture before people and before the Lord and how to honor other people. But when you travel with me, you see how I really operate. And you see how I operate when my rental car was um, scheduled to be picked up at one airport but returned to a different airport. Or when I come off the platform and there's been a picture taken of just my nose, my very large nose on the jumbotron on the platform. Like you get to see character and not just hear lessons about how you should behave. They're actually seeing how I actually live it out. Um, and that requires a lot of integrity and a lot of humility. And it's a way to keep myself in check. The conversations I have on road trips are also some of the most valuable ones I've had. One conversation in particular with a millennial, the most important conversation I think I've ever had with them in our entire you know, 10 years of knowing each other happened at Wrigley Field during a baseball game. Um, every now and then we have people who live with us. Now, this is one that you, know, you enter into 
trepidatiously and with full consent of your family. But um, we just kind of fell into it. We've had a number of millennials that have come and lived with us in the months preceding their marriage. So a situation where, you know, they're going to move in to the guy's place, but the girl's lease is up or vice versa or something like that. They'll come live with us for, you know, three to six months and um, we don't ask anything of them. Um, it's, it's a way for us to bless. And it's also hopefully some of the best marriage counseling they'll get. Because again, instead of listening to one of us tell them how you ha- communicate and how you handle finances and how you handle conflict and how you handle disagreement and how you divide up chores in the house, they just get to see it in practice. Uh, two questions I ask, who are you calling me to? I'll ask God this every year at the turn of a year. Who are you calling me to? There are a lot of people that I will make myself available to, but there's always a handful of people that I feel like the Holy Spirit puts on my heart. I'm calling you to them. And those are the people that I'll invite into the discipleship journey that I will carve out time for on my calendar anytime I can. I'm going to pursue them. And then what can I give away? And some of this is like, it's like what wisdom do I have that I can give away? What, what, what experiences do I have? What guidance do I have to give away? But also, is there anything in my hand, an opportunity, a growth experience? Um, is there something I have that I can give away to them? Um, is there a platform I can give away? Is there a job I can give away? Is there an opportunity I can give away? Um, so two questions I ask. So I'm going to hit the pause button here. Um, I wanna, we've got about 15 minutes to just do some Q&A, and so I wanted to just give an opportunity for that. Uh, also, I have Jody here. Uh, Jody is on my team at NCC. She is a millennial, and I've asked her to fact check me. So um, you can also feel free, and I would actually encourage directing questions at her might be more useful than directing them at me because, as I said earlier, we need to stop talking about millennials and start talking to them. So, uh, yeah, any, any questions or observations? Yeah. We have a core, what, kind of what I kind of consider the core, that are there almost every week. Uh, and then there are others that we've invited that will sometimes pop in. And then they all know that they have the freedom to bring people over. Um, friends over. So, uh, for instance, sometimes when people are, are dating somebody new, they'll—I mean—they they don't just bring them to meet the parents; they bring them to meet the whole family dinner. Um, and so, it's uh, a—it's it's kind of a core, but there is there's freedom there. And we're constantly kind of asking: Is there somebody else that needs to be added into this mix? And how big is that core? Um, how big is the core? Like ten to twelve. And look, I mean. Ryan is an ama- Ryan loves to cook as well. Like he, that's one of his hobbies. Oh, I'm sorry. This is right. Wave your hand. I'm assuming everybody knows you. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, but millennials are just as happy. I think if it doesn't have to be a big deal. Like you can put cereal boxes and milk up on your counter and say go for it. And it's more about that relationship, I think, than the food. Although I don't know. You might say it's the food. <laughs> um, good question. Yeah. You have three, so I don't know. I just have one. <laughs> um, yeah, the question is just practically, logistically, how do you have people into your home on a regular basis when your schedule's hectic and your family's crazy and you've got three kids? Um, so I'm very hesitant to speak to that and talk about how easy it is because if we had three, I don't. I think if we had three, each one of those children would be assigned one of the millennials that's over for dinner, and they're responsible for putting them to bed at night. Um, I don't know. I mean, do you have any uh, thoughts yeah, on that? <laughs> and sometimes more. I mean. But, uh, but yeah, that's just that feeling 
invitation there. And then they're like, you've said us for years. We'll, you know, just let us know. So we just have a list we go through. <laughs> we do. So repaid us in a sense that way that we get a lot of free babysitting as a result. Um, and it, again, it's very casual and chaotic. I mean, like Ryan said, it's not like we have a set table. I mean, it's like, come in, grab a paper plate, get your food, you know where the drinks are. Um, and some nights, I mean, again, Ryan is like, I can't, um, I can't believe the meals he produces for this thing. But like, there are some nights it's like, we ordered pizza, it'll be here in 15 minutes. I'm going to put sorry to bed, you, you get the, the pizza from the guy when he comes. So, yeah. And when they said no one ever talks to me that way, yeah, so the question is just, to, it has to do with kind of the emotional fragility of millennials that when you speak directly, it, you have to be sensitive to feelings and hurting their hearts and things like that. And I think it's a result of the helicopter parenting, you know, like our generation, like if, if I had a problem with a friend at school, my mom was like, well, what did you do? <laughs> it's my it's my fault and my problem not the friends and this is a generation that their parents are going to fight their battles for them um my question is when when they said no one talks to me like this even though they were crying was that don't talk to me that way or was there a level of gratitude that you were talking to them that way no, it was, uh, <laughs> it was no, don't do this to me <laughs> okay <laughs> um <clears throat> there's <laughs> there's I want you to speak to this too, so start thinking how you'd answer this, because you've been in crucial conversations with millennials that you've been frustrated with the same thing. Um, there's a book called Crucial Conversations. It's not like a Christian book, it's just a good principles book. Um, the book itself is a little bit laborious to get through. There's stupid examples and like, I would never, but the principles are really helpful about like, you know, when you have inner a crucial conversation, there are the facts and then there are the stories we put around the facts. And what I found is that millennials tell amazing stories about facts. I will say something, and then the story they wrap around it is I'm not for them. I don't believe. I had one of my direct reports come into me and say, I just feel like you don't believe in me. Because I had asked them a question about something that had happened that was bad at a sunny morning like experience. Like, I'm like, no, I'm just being your boss. Um, so the story they wrap around the facts is often, like in our minds, fantastical. And so reading that book might actually have you help like have some of those conversations. Um, I found, again, I, I try to use the lane that I've been given and just push a little bit harder. I did have a millennial, there is a millennial in my life that I can, I can say buck up to. And I do regularly. Uh, in fact, one time we were on a trip and this millennial told me, um, hey, uh, I want us to not spend much time talking to these people because I'm ready to get back to the hotel and do whatever, launch a game or something. I said, look, you're not my priority right now. Sometimes you are my priority. You're not my priority right now. And it hit like she's like, Ugh. but I could talk to her that way because we have that relationship. So I think it's just growing the relationship to that place. But we will always be caught off guard by that because it's, a, it's just a generational difference. Okay, I don't know whose hand was up first, so... Oh, okay, I'll go with the one all the way in the back, because Dave is... Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, can you... <laughs> no, no, I think it's... Um, yeah, do we need to stroke them more? Like, do we need to just... Um, I mean, Ryan, what would you say to this? Because I'm a thinker and a feeler, and so I'm not into stroking anybody. Um, you have an empathy strength. Uh, yeah, I stroke everybody. <laughs> 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 I, 
think it, I think we can show that we care without like when you and again this is authenticity like they need to know that however you're reacting is authentic to who you are and according to the character of God so I don't think we stroke I think we just are who we are and we show compassion the way that we show compassion uh yeah Yeah, I I think so. I think there's a lot of openness to that. I think they do want to connect with older generations. And so sometimes I feel like I'm a translator. I feel like I'm a translator between Gen X and millennial and between boomer and millennial. And so I do feel like sometimes there, I I can encourage them in certain postures and certain questions. And they're very, I've found they've been very open to that. Um, One more from Rob and then we'll be here so we can talk more after. I didn't. (laughs) Uh, yeah, so when it comes to some of the difficult issues in our culture and our society, um, so particularly uh, sexual sobriety, same-sex attraction, uh, the fact that they've grown up in a pluralistic society where what, is, what I believe is good for me, what you believe is good for you, and it's good. Um, we live in a culture where it's wrong to say that something's wrong, and that's wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, yes, we do have those conversations. Again, what I try to do is use the lane that's been given to me to the extent that, that I can, can push there. And I do, I'll, we will bring it back to the Bible. We'll bring it back to wisdom even. Like sometimes I'll just ask the wisdom question. It does change the game when you have a name and a face. And, I, and that's not just a millennial thing. That, my mom is a boomer and I'll start talking to her about my friend who is in New York who is gay and I'll ask the question, like maybe there's some legislation on the table that would affect him. And she'd say, oh, but for him, I, I mean, I, I care about that. I think he should. So it's like, yeah, when you have a name and a face, it doesn't change what we believe, but it changes our approach. And so um, one of the ways that we handle this uh, or address it more largely at NCC, uh, for years, Ryan has led a discussion called Grace, Truth, and Homosexuality and holding intention, what do we believe to be orthodox biblical truth with how do we love people and relate to people and give them opportunities to hear the gospel and be a part of what we're doing. Um, in this May, we're, we're, taking, we're building off that idea to do something called the sex talks and we're bringing in experts to kind of talk about sexuality, uh, all, all kinds of it, um, and what we believe biblically and how do we, how do we get to the table on these discussions culturally as followers of Jesus. So anyway, all right, I'm done. Thanks. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. The message you heard was from LionShare's track at the National Disciple Making Forum. Make sure to download the free PDF called The Process of Transformation. Download this at discipleship.org slash LionShare. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.